Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Beneath the Truth and Movies. Today, War for the Planet of the Apes. Circus goes to town as Weta Studios render Caesar in epic tale of guerrilla warfare. And, getting legless on the southern comfort, it's Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled. Plus, Film Club, we try Max My Love, the movie, not the internet pill offer. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Blimey. Well, hello there, everybody, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Truth and Movies. Very excited to have with us today Manuela Lazic. Hello. Hi, Manuela, who's the twin sister of Elena, who you probably heard on last week's podcast. That's right. Right. That's so fascinating. Identical twins, and you do identical work. Yeah, we're both film critics. We both studied film uh, at university, and yeah, it just kind of happened. Do you ever disagree violently about films between yourselves? Oh, yeah. Yourselves? And yeah? That's, that's when it's more interesting. It's great. Okay. But, oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's like, it makes for really good conversations and I think it's a good exercise. Okay. So and, I feel really lucky. And you also only need one press pass for film festivals. Well, <laughs> one time we had to use our genetical like similarity, similarity yeah. <laughs> to to get into a festival. But um, since then we've been recognized as two separate human beings. So we okay. now have two passes. <laughs> Outstanding. Congratulations for that. Thank Manuela. you. Uh, Adam Woodward. Hi. Very much your own entity. Yeah. Good to have you uh, with us today as we prepare to discuss some very, uh, very interesting and some fabulous looking films. We'll talk about how much more they do than look fabulous. Uh, if you want to get in touch, we'll be looking at one or two of your comments later on, then you certainly can do uh, uh, via email at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or on Twitter at LWLies or Facebook, just the Little White Lies uh, Facebook page. How's the actual podcast homepage getting along? It's getting there. Is it? All right, super. E- ETA is not confirmed, but it's uh, it's on its way. All right. Actually, if I may, I'd just like to kick us off with a fun fact this week, because I know you love those. We are talking about uh, Baby Driver and Okja the other week. Um, a friend of mine got in touch to say that he'd watched Snowpiercer, and apparently, according to him anyway, I haven't actually even verified this myself, but apparently uh, Jamie Bell's character in Snowpiercer was named after Edgar Wright. Really? Yeah. Okay. He's named Edgar. He's named Edgar, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I still haven't seen Snowpiercer because uh, David's hoarding his, his, you know, the, the one copy that we have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, looking forward to that. All right, well, we're going to kick off today with War for the Planet of the Apes. I did not start this
shuts off for good. Wow. Wow. Right. Andy Circus there as Caesar, kind of channeling a little bit of Sylvester Stallone. They drew first blood in the uh, third part of this uh, rebooted trilogy of Planet of the Apes, uh, courtesy of director Matt Reeves, as the struggle between human survivors of simian flu and uh, Caesar's apes coalition uh, as, as their struggle reaches a climax. Adam? Do you know what? Someone should make a remake, First Blood, with a monkey in the lead role. I think I would want to see <laughs> if that. If they already hadn't. Well, exactly. Yeah. It wouldn't so, be that different, though. No. Mm. OK, so... Um, <laughs> General consensus on the War for the Planet of the Apes is that it's the best of the three films so far. What did you think? Yeah, the third in the prequel series, which takes place, I think, about 15 years after Rise, which is the first one. Confusingly, Dawn and Rise, I think they kind of got that the wrong way around. And... Well, it depends. They either got up before Dawn. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Is it the Rise before the Dawn? Oh, it can be, and now here's the war. But anyway, what did you think of this film? Then? The war itself, the sort of titular war... It takes a little while to kind of get going. It's a film which I think is opens with this amazing sort of 20-minute or so sequence where you're immersed in this ape world in, in the kind of forest where we left them before um, and ends up ultimately with, with, the, with the war unfolding. And in the middle, I think it sags a little bit. Um, but the, the premise is that Caesar is... Uh, essentially trying to end the the conflict between the humans. Um, We find out that the humans have been decimated by the simian flu uh, and there's a sort of gathering of them um, in in an isolated old military facility in California. Um, I think it's probably a bit further north than that. Is it a bit further north? Yeah, I think so. Up near the border, they say. On the western seaboard Mm. of America. And the humans have got sort of actually bigger problems than than the apes, Mm, um, as as we find out. Yeah. Uh, Okay. it looks amazing. You mentioned the opening sequence and that that skirmish at the start, which is extraordinary uh, to look at. Did it did it do more than just excite you visually, Manuela? Um, I think it is. the, The fact that it's exciting visually is one of its most interesting attributes, because it's not just exciting visually. I found that the style was really classical. It kind of looked like a, a Western sometimes, but not in a Logan way. Like, I think it really looked like a Western. Like, the um, the way the shots were constructed, they were really composed. There was great tension in the images. For instance, there's this image where the apes are looking into a sort of cave and scared of what's going to come. And, they're, you know, it's a, it's a parallel shot to them. And it's really just really intense and really scary. I thought it was so, so gripping for that. And that's not something I didn't find in the previous uh, film by Matt Reeves, the the other Planet of the Apes movie, uh, Dawn. So I don't know what happened there, but it's really, really striking. Well, he he's uh, there's actually an interesting article with him in, on Den of Geek, uh-huh. uh, their website, where he talks specifically about the fact that he was able to, um, with the new technology, with the cameras he used, and, and having done Dawn, that he was able to actually map things out in the right order, whereas previously he'd had a lot of the CGI done and then had to kind of retrofit his actual shots to it. Oh, that so, explains. So he, he, he's really very, very proud of the way that this looks. He's gone for a, an epic, almost biblical feel to, yeah. the, to the film at times. Totally. Like, And my sister, actually, Elena, who was on this podcast last week, she's, she said that she has this theory that maybe the reason why the shots are so beautifully composed is because the CGI is so so precise that mm. they had to take time to look at each frame. And that's why the, the monkeys look so real. 
And so because they had time to look at each frame, they had time to compose them so well. And I think that's that makes it so much better than most blockbusters where there's loads of CGI. Right. I don't know if you caught Transformers, whatever it was. I caught one of them. Right. <laughs> but we were talking here about the number of edits per sec, per, per, well, probably per second in that, that film. This is so measured by it's comparison. It's so patient. And yeah. so you get to to really see all the details of the CGI, but not just in a superficial look at how good we are at this thing way. It's it's really, it just makes the film so much better. And, and you get the sense that those apes are real characters, like real apes. Mm. I was going to say real people, but right. not evil. Well, we should talk a bit about the people behind the apes. Steve Zahn entering the, the cast list here with, with Bad Ape, mm. um, and an interesting addition he proves, but... It, it's hard to look past Andy Serkis in, in the role of Caesar. Yeah, the Steve Zahn character is the comic relief in this film, which is a very serious film. Um, it's really going for that kind of almost overall emotional uh, impact. I think it just about gets there. Um, it's interesting, the ape characters are so much more uh, realised and, and fleshed out than the human characters. Mm. I mean, Woody Harrelson is the sort of antagonist in this, but he's really only in it for like a five-minute exposition dialogue sequence. What you say? Where he basically just says what we already kind of know. He fills in the, the, the gaps, basically, because we know that this film is built, is leading up to the original 1968 film, right. the events of that film. So it's it's kind of uh, going back and filling in the, some of the science stuff that we've maybe missed. Or does the, do, does the timeline of this film, does it actually marry with the old Charlton Heston pictures? There's a few subtle hints uh, in this film as to the events which we, uh, as I say, lead up to the Charlton Heston film. Um, one character uh, shares a name with a character in the Charlton Heston film, um, but we don't know if it's the same character mm. or, or, or kind of homage to, to that film. So um, I think there is, yeah, I think the timeline does does kind of make sense. Mm. Um, as I say, it happens. I, I would place this maybe sort of 20 years or so before the 1968 film. Okay. In the whole overarching right. timeline. It sagged for you a little in the middle, you were saying. Overall, what did you think? I think this film is, because of the CGI, because of how... Um, advanced it is they're so confident with this film it's really hit its stride I mean three films in um, I've always found the the concept a little bit of a stretch that, that sounds strange because the, I'm such a big fan of the original films mm. and I've always enjoyed those but I think with these you know just the image of, of monkeys riding around on horseback firing shotguns for me it's a little bit of a kind of leap in, in logic I know it's a sci-fi film and and everything else but with these films They've got to a point now where they're just so confident with it that you just believe it and, mm. and you, you're you kind of with it. You almost don't notice. You almost don't notice, yeah. Mm. Um, it, it is a shame about the human characters because I think you do need that like conflict. The main conflict in this film right. is happening with Caesar internally, mm. I think. It's, his, it's, a, it's a kind of moral dilemma that he's having with himself. Okay. Um, Manuela, yeah. thumbs up from you? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was just so beautifully realised and... I wasn't super familiar with the franchise. I had I had on I hadn't seen any of the other Planet of the Apes movies until I saw that one. And then yesterday and the day before I watched um Rise and Dawn. Mm -hmm. But I, I just find it so fascinating in how it kind of ticks all the boxes to talk about so many issues. So, you know, obviously race and class and the animal-human divide and uh, all those things. I'm not saying it does all those things really well mm. or I'm not saying it's not problematic in some respects, but 
I, I remember watching that one, um, War for the Planet of the Apes, at some point I was just struck by how this is kind of a, a strange, bizarre, fantastical metaphor for decolonization. Because you know, decolonization. Okay. Because once you've uh, you've you know learned the things of the people who have colonized you, you can't just get rid of them. You can't just become who you used to be because you you've never known what you used to be. Mm. Uh, Caesar's son doesn't know what it's like to be just a normal ape. So you see these apes just living as apes, but still with uh, human-like attributes, and that's just that's just fascinating. I'm not saying the movie really explores that in a very profound way but it's it's definitely nice to see a blockbuster that makes you think about that kind of thing yeah but there's a there's a lot going on in this film totally and also the quoting very very obviously uh apocalypse now mm. and i remember when i was watching it, i was like oh this is this is funny like it looks like apocalypse now and also just in the themes you know the story of woody harrison's character mm. is very much like cuts cuts mm. in apocalypse now but then it kind of gets very heavy and very on the nose being like, in case you missed it, this is ape uh, apocalypse now. How do we say it? Apocalypse now. It's, ape- it's, it's famously now. written on the... Um, the wall of a tunnel. On, yeah. the, t- on yeah. the temple in Apocalypse Now. Oh, is it? Right. Yeah, right. because they, they didn't actually... If you watch that film, it doesn't have any opening credits. Right. Uh, and for a film to be passed by the uh, Movie Picture Association in America... It has to have the the title somewhere in the film, whether it's in the credits. Oh. So that's the way they got around it was to graffiti it on the temple. So this is a sort of nod to that. But then, yeah, they've they've used the terrible ape apocalypse now, which every, everyone's used by this point. Yeah. Um, and it's literally, I mean, the opening shot is is evokes Vietnam imagery mm. because you've got these um, soldiers and their their um, helmets. They have some great helmets. Some Monkey good, killer. some good graffiti. Like I think one says something like "Bedtime um, for Bonzo." Yeah, bedtime for Bonzo, which mm-hmm. is great. Uh, <laughs> and so you instantly, you know, you're like, okay, Vietnam. It does something similar with it, I think, to what uh, Kong Skull Island did, right? Repurposing that, the okay. imagery and iconography of that war. I found that the score was incredible. The score was also just like the cinematography, kind of classical. It's by Michael Giacchino, mm. and it was so thrilling and used very intelligently sometimes there was just silence and that was terrifying i was really scared also during this movie but so i don't think it's really really for kids because there's a lot of gun violence as well but the score was so beautiful and so so gripping Mm, which is another thing that marks it as 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 a very different kind of blockbuster in that yeah it is willing to use silence for so much of the of the film that's something that's so rare and Mm. I'm, i'm always surprised at how few blockbusters understand that like that's so powerful. Funnily enough, the bit where you felt that it sagged a little bit was the bit that I most enjoyed when it pared it down from these vast hordes of, of, of apes or humans to just five or six characters riding along on this kind of quest. And that middle section, I've, I found really lyrical. I really enjoyed that. It's a little bit overlong, I mm. would say, perhaps. Yeah. But, but apart from that, um, I would say it's worth seeing just for the technical achievement. Visually, it's just an astonishing film. Absolutely. Almost distractingly so. I mean, <laughs> as much as you cannot fault the CGI in this, and there's certain shots, there's one shot in particular of Caesar uh, in the rain, and the detail on his fur, on his wet fur, is just unbelievable. Mm. Uh, I still think, as impressive as it is, and this is just my love for the originals speaking here, but give me a, a bloke in a monkey suit 
any day right. over this. Well, interesting. Oh. We'll be talking about a film with a, exactly. a, a fellow in a monkey suit later on. Um, Matt Reeves, the director, did Cloverfield, which I really enjoyed. And oh, he's, that's right. He's down to do The Batman as and when that finally mm. gets underway with Ben Affleck in the... Uh, Oh. In, in, in the titular role. That, that's quite that's exciting. exciting isn't it? Yeah. I think that's good. Maybe they should use CGI to make the Batman instead of Ben Affleck, but I don't know. Maybe that's just my idea. Interesting. <laughs> but otherwise, what score would you like to give it? Oh, Anticipation. I would say, well, I hadn't seen any of them, but the trailer looked amazing, so I'd say three. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoyment, four and a half. I would say I had so much fun. And uh, in retrospect, I'd say four. Definitely worth seeing. Add? I think three, four, three. Okay. And the four is is for the the wetter guys. Right. James, I want to know your scores. Well, I wasn't anticipating all that much because I wasn't blown away by the first two. So probably around a two there. Really found it a thrilling film. Four. Afterwards, wasn't sure whether it, it actually said all that much but it was a brilliant day out at the cinema because it is quite a long film Mm. Um, so I'll I'll give it a kind of three and a half in in retrospect but yeah definitely worth seeing oh up next we'll talk about The Beguiled Is your leg paining you? Some Well I hear numbness would be more grave Indeed there's some brandy, if you wish. Oh, now that would be a pleasure. It's not being offered for your pleasure, only for your comfort. Yes, ma'am. I must remind you, Corporal McBunny, you are not a guest here. You are a most unwelcome visitor, and we do not propose to entertain you. Well, I wouldn't expect it, ma'am. Although you'll find I'm easily amused. <laughs> hey, the beguiled. All right, Sophia Coppola at the helm here for what is remarkably only her sixth feature film in about two so, decades yeah. worth of work. All right, so, Manuela, did Nicole Kidman entertain you? Uh, Nicole Kidman was fine. Nothing wrong with her. So basically she plays this uh, lady who's uh, in charge of this, uh, how would you call that? Seminary, is it? A seminary for girls? Is it, is it a seminary? Yes. It's a girls' school. A girls', a girls school. school mm. In Virginia during the Civil War. And... Um, She's staying in that school with a few other young women who have been sheltered there during the war and everybody else is basically gone. And uh, one day, one of the little girls finds uh, a Union soldier wounded in the woods and she takes him in to to help him because otherwise he's going to die because of his wounded leg. But soon, the beautiful man, played by Colin Farrell, Colonel McBurney, create some sexual tensions amongst the girls mm. and rivalries and then stuff happens, happens. yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you say uh, well th- this is a, a story that has been told uh, famously by the Don Siegel Clint Eastwood version which mm-hmm. we talked about on film club about a month or so ago and it shares the source material which is Thomas Cullinan's uh, novels from a novel from I think 66 called I believe the painted devil I might be wrong about that Anyway, and what Sophia Coppola was doing here, she says, was she told that she, our very own, was Sophie Monk-Kaufman? Sophie Monk-Kaufman, yeah, Monk-Kaufman. In, an, in an interview which you can read on our website, mm. right now. She says, it's telling the same story, but from the woman's character's point of view. 
does it tell you more this film about have you seen the the the, the previous version so i saw coppola's and then uh, so i saw coppola's in Cannes, and then a few weeks later i saw the original at the prince charles cinema on prince it was beautiful I found that in Coppola's version, what she was trying to do, or maybe what she means by from the women's perspective, is that she tried to make the women look better. In a way, she tried to make them look less crazy. But then again, I think in the original, they do not look crazy. They look like women who are scared, uh, who haven't seen a man in a long time, who have forbidden desires, and who are trying to deal with them in the best way they can. And so obviously they do strange things, but mm -hmm. that's understandable given the circumstances. So I think, I don't know, I found Coppola's was a watered-down version of this and really not an interesting update at all. All right. Adam, what did you think? I, I'm with you a little bit on that in terms of it not necessarily doing that much different to the uh, Don Siegel version, although, yeah, Coppola has said this is more of an adaptation of the novel um, and probably represents an update on that mm. um, I have not read a novel so I wouldn't know uh, yeah I think the Siegel version is possibly a little bit dated and, and the characters do feel a little bit it's quite histrionic in the depiction of, of, of certainly the uh, not so much the young young women but the kind of young mm -hmm. adult women in the film um, in this I think it's, it's just a really uh, beautiful character piece it's, it's just quite a tight ensemble of recognisable faces in Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst as well who I think has maybe gives the best performance in this film mm. uh, she's and, the best by far yeah and younger actors uh, Elle Fanning who we've seen in The Neon Demon who's kind of coming of age now and um, young uh, Angaree Rice as well mm. Mm -hmm. um, who's terrific in The Nice Guys I've got to say I really love this film oh well yeah well I was quite alone in my disliking of it so yeah if it's any help, Manuel, I wasn't blown away by Great. this. I wasn't sure what... I was amazed when I'd heard that she decided that... It was, sorry, when, when she announced she was going to do this. Me too. Uh, and I really didn't know what it added, except for the fact that it looks a lot more... I was going to say modern. It's actually quite classic in the way that it's it's put together the, visually. It looks fantastic and a lot less dated than all the kind of melodramatic crash zooms and... and, and and stuff that, yeah, that the, the Seagull had the in psychedelic the original. That's true. So the imagery I found really, really interesting. Um, it's a great film to look at, much as War of the Planet mm -hmm. Apes, from that kind of Red Riding Hood opening scene of, of the girl going mm -hmm. off to pick her mushrooms. And it's an interesting thing, that notion of who is the big bad wolf, because I actually found Colin Farrell in this version way more sympathetic and, and much less the fox in the hen house yeah. that, that Clint had been in the, in the is, earlier version. Which is such a strange thing to do, because... It is important that the guy be such a, a liar. Like, what's really interesting in the Seagull version is that it does that amazing thing that a few films do, for example, uh, the original Mission, Mission Impossible, where you have a character saying, telling a story about something that happened, and what you see is what actually happened. It's different. It does that thing in the Seagull where Clint Eastwood is saying, oh, yeah, I was this great war, uh, soldier, and actually he was horrible and a coward. In this one... Uh, Coppola just got rid of all the backstory, basically, of all the characters, the, the guy, the girls as well. And so it's much less interesting and it's mm. much less believable as well. Because So Edwina, played by Kirsten Dunst, she obviously has so much on her mind and Kirsten's performance really translates that. But then that's based on nothing because we have no backstory. We just have like, oh, look at her eyes. She looks really sad. Something must have happened but we never get to know any of this so I don't know if I would call this a great character study because the characters are also kind of empty and shells I think it's a great character study for purely for like Colin Farrell's character and mm. 
I feel like I have to defend this now. Uh, yeah, please more do. More so than I might have done. But That's more interesting. He's, he's quite ambiguous. Uh, he's in this sort of survival mode initially. We should say that he's, he's sort of injured. He's sort of recovering in this, in this girls' school. His charm, he charms the women, basically. Um, and I think his, his performance is, is quite subtle in that way. He, he's, it's not over the top. He's not a kind of, um, you know, winking kind of ladies' man. Yeah, it's uh, terrific, I think. It's yeah, he, he, he plays it down a little bit. And he's very easy, uh, as I say, ambiguous in, in his intentions of actually what is he trying to get out of the women? Is he just trying to woo them so that they can... Uh, heal him and he can stay there and see out the war Uh, I I think it's yeah it's a very complex and layered performance from Colin Farrell I agree that he's good and his performance is really kind of suits the film and his character is interesting but I just feel like not having the whole story like the whole historical aspect is lost as well which is a shame because it's so important which she's consciously decided to to remove yeah uh, which is has become a real issue and a lot of people's reaction to this film specifically the one black character uh, in the novel and in the seagull version the uh the the slave Mm. Uh, there's an announcement that one of the characters says at the start of this film all the slaves have left Mm. which sophia coppola says basically i just didn't want to kind of cloud almost what i was doing with this film with a discussion of slavery and race but it's kind of strange when you're doing a film about the civil war not to have any kind of reflection on that at all Mm. well the, the novel is as much about that as anything else and there's also a character in it who is uh, mixed race and is living as a as a white woman, right. um, and so she she's an, an interesting counterpoint to the slave the housemaid character. Coppola, I can see why she's done it. I think if she had retained those characters, specifically the the maid character from the Don Siegel film, she would have to address that. Mm. And clearly, she felt that she was not in a position to do so. Uh, I think. Why would why would she not be in a position to do so? I mean, in terms of the story she's trying to tell, yeah. uh, I think she she probably felt that it was something that was maybe too big a topic for her to get into. I don't right. know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak before, yeah. uh, for her, but sure. I think respecting an artist's decision in what they the story they're trying to tell. I mean, treat so the what, film for what it is, kind yeah. of. Thing. Sure. Okay. Because it looks fantastic, and although I wasn't wild about it, I. I would still say it was say it was worth seeing because it does look fantastic, beautifully put together cinematographer Philippe Le Saint Le Sourd, is it? Philippe Manuel? Le Sourd. Is he? I'm not familiar. I do with not this know word. him. Okay, no, he's done a bang up job on the, on this. Was anybody else reminded of the others with Nicole Kidman in a house in wartime, I surrounded by fog? It. Slightly, yeah. Mm. Although where that film is. I think absolutely terrifying. This yeah. one I found quite funny in places. Yeah. Uh, there's there's oh. one particular scene, the dinner dinner scene uh, later on, which is yeah, just absolutely hysterical. Mm. I mean, that purely is down to Nicole Kidman's mm. uh, delivery of of her dialogue. Uh, I think it had a little bit more to say, not necessarily on the civil war or slavery or these issues, which yeah, she stripped them away, perhaps not for not for the best reasons. Um, you could probably have set this film in any time or place right. and, and mm. have much the same story. But as a, as a kind of film about uh, young female coming of age, sexual awakening and, and repressed sexuality as well, is, I think it's very interesting. Give it some numbers, Adam. Four for anticipation. I like Sophia Coppola generally. Her last film, The Bling Ring, I absolutely adored. So oh, wow. slightly, slightly higher anticipation than, uh, than, than maybe otherwise. And yeah, uh, a four in enjoyment. 
and I think a five in retrospect. Really? A yeah. five in retrospect? Yeah, wow. I love this film. Wow. Manuela, follow that. <laughs> so, yeah, anticipation, so I'd say four. And I also really liked her movies, um, especially The Virgin Suicides. Enjoyment, uh, two. I was really bored and also I felt really distressed because I could tell that everyone else was enjoying it. <laughs> I was just like, what is wrong with me? But this and, was a um, can, yeah, where because she can. won Best Director. I know, and I'm like, I'm really glad she did. It's mm. great, you know, women should win and she deserves it for other films. Mm. So that's good. <clears throat> but yeah, that this one. And uh, yeah, in retrospect, I'd say two again because really? it's, it's such a mm. waste. It's such a missed opportunity, I feel. It did, just didn't happen. <laughs> I anticipated three. I enjoyed it eh, two and a half. And probably in retrospect, I'm thinking it looked great. I'll give it a three. But, you know, it's worth seeing. It's a fine piece of cinematic craft, that's for sure. Did you want to have a final word on this? I was just going to say fair do's and love to hear listeners' thoughts on it. So people should share their scores with us on, on Twitter or... Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. And if you like Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell as a partnership, you can see them again soon in The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which mm-hmm. was also at Cannes. Yes, it was. And that's by Yogi, what was his name? Lance? Uh, Yorgos Lantimos. There we go. Uh, who did previously uh, Yogi The Lobster. Yogi to his friends. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a very different film. Okay. Uh, now, next up, it's The Little White Lies Film Club, and a very special edition this week as we look back on the 1986 French film Max Mon Amour, Max My Love. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Right, some classic dialogue there from the <laughs> Oshima's a 1986 film, Max Mon Amour, uh, Max My Love, uh, which we're doing because it features a person in a monkey suit, the way you like it, old school, Adam, yep. uh, which ties in nicely with the release of War for the Planet of the Apes this, this week. Oh, my word. Can I just ask, beyond that tie-in, who on earth suggested this extraordinarily bizarre film? Well, I'm going to blame David because he's not here, but I must say, I'd never seen this before. I'd heard about it. I'd seen the VHS cover uh, and been intrigued and known it was kind of out there. Uh, and I'm so pleased that we've done this for Film Club because I, I absolutely love this film. What? <laughs> so apparently listeners were very intrigued by the clip you guys posted on the Facebook page. Daniel Pattison commented, is this real? Paul Hill said, this could be the greatest or worst film of all time. And uh, Mac Garrett saying, I caught this on VHS thanks to the video library at Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is random. Rambling is hypnotic, but I regret that it's not one of Nagisa Oshima's stronger efforts. The ensuing comedy is uniquely French. Rambling's husband's reaction is quiescent. Yeah. So some people did see it. Right. Okay, Adam, for anyone who didn't see this film, you lucky things, um, what does it actually, what's it about? It's a love story between Charlotte Rampling's character Margaret uh, and a monkey, a chimpanzee called Max. Her husband, he's a sort of womanising British diplomat played by Anthony Higgins, and he notices that his, his wife has been uh, playing away Hmm. So hires a, a private detective to find out what's going on. Why is he womanising? He has an affair, but she has an affair with a monkey. Well, no, that, that, this is true, but he discovers this. Yeah. This is what happens within the first like two minutes of the film. He hmm. discovers that um, she's taken uh, an ape as her lover. And in fact, it delivers the immortal line. I think it's like, Margaret, do you mean to tell me your lover is a monkey? <laughs> and that's excellent so delivery. The, the, thank you. The, the film shows its hand quite early. Right. Uh, and then there's a kind of love affair between um, these two characters. You don't know whether there's anything sexual going on. It's not necessarily implied. Uh, initially, when I was watching it, I thought, has she previously twigged his infidelity? Mm. And is this well, she's her, aware of his infidelity. Yeah, and is this her revenge on him? Right. Is she essentially playing this wicked game with him, mm. with, with um, Anthony Higgins' character? Well, it's quite clear that she knows that he's having an affair with his co-worker. But, but whether it's her just revenge on him... Uh, she, I didn't get that at all. She said she saw the monkey in the zoo and they their eyes met and they fell in love. Well, so this is what I was going to say, is that the more the film goes on, the more uh, I think the film convinces you that the love is genuine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a kind of comment on, ultimately, the, the fact that love is blind. Is that what the comment is, is about? Because... The, you got the Edward Albee play The Goat or Who is Sylvia, which is a similar thing, human falling in love with an animal. And essentially it's making a point about either the hypocrisy or the impossibility of trying to anyway, in any way define or legislate what is proper for a person to feel sexual impulses about and, and what not. But this film, I was just mystified as to why Oshima was... was what he was trying to do. Mm. Victoria Abril's in this film and... It struck me, imagine if Amadova had produced this, what, it would have been a romp, <laughs> but instead you've got this 
really rather dull treatment of, of a bizarre story. The whole thing could have been a, a kind of mid-80s Disney TV movie in terms of the styling and the direction. It's very, very flat. It's not particularly a comedy because it's not particularly funny. The end has become almost like a Harry and the Hendersons moment with this kind of delighted family reunion and people waving at, at this monkey on the roof of a, a Range Rover around the streets of Paris. I, it's so interesting that you liked it because I absolutely did not. The ending oh. is a bit silly, I'll give you that. And it does feel very dated. Uh, I think the the flatness, though, or the mundanity of the situation is is totally intentional. Really, yeah, okay. I, agree. I think the idea is that you know the husband has just accepted this this character as as perhaps he he wouldn't do to a um, a human, a man that she was having an affair with. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating study of of relationships uh, and the bonds we form with each other and with animals specifically. Um, I, I, yeah, I love this film. Okay, I hated it. Uh, Adam loved it. Manuela. <laughs> well, I I wouldn't say I loved it, but I definitely had a really good time watching it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I thought I'm I'm not sure it's really about or just about how love is blind and all that. I think it's more of a sort of strange subdued critique of uh, the bourgeoisie. Okay. In that it's this woman Charlotte Rampling, who's obviously you know she has a great life in terms of possessions and money. She's married to this British diplomat, and I guess she doesn't even have a job. She just, you know, lives. And she starts to have an affair with a monkey because that's what she wants. She wants more life in her life. She wants more animation and genuine feelings. Mm. And there's this amazing moment where she's having dinner with uh, friends for her birthday and uh, they hear the monkey in the other room and they're like, what, what is this? They, they can't guess what animal it is from the sound because they can guess like the races of dogs that they hear in the street because they're bourgeois and that's what they do. They use dogs. But they can't guess what it is. So she brought him in. She brought Max in and Max can't help himself and he starts just like being very kind to her, like kind of caressing her and it's really intense and people are like, is he always like this? And it's amazing because that's when you see her as a real woman with feelings for once. She's not just like this cold, beautifully 80s dressed woman anymore. She's like a woman with, well, it's a monkey, but it's someone mm. who makes makes her feel something. So I, I really f- saw the film as this kind of critic of uh, the bourgeoisie and how the bourgeoisie is dead inside, basically. I also have to say, I found Charlotte Rampling absolutely insufferable uh, just astonishingly smug her performance in this film, but that might just be me again. I think it's possibly again intentional, and she's very icy in this movie. Yeah. She doesn't show much affection mm-hmm. outwardly to the human, the people around her. Right. Only really to Max. Um, actually, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to Elsa Burke, who plays Max and is uncredited in this movie. Uh, and she's got a fascinating filmography, actually. She was uh, in Return of the Jedi. Uh, I think uh, very early on in her career, she also um, played Aslan in a TV adaptation in the 80s of uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, she played a, a panda in the film Fierce Creatures. Right. I just think it's fascinating, these actors who make a living from performing as animals. And then Andy Serkis came along and nobody else can get a look in anymore. The thing is, Andy Serkis is, is amazing in this in what he does. But if I read another interview with him where he's trying to sort of I don't know, so, you know, talking about uh, being in Oscar contention for his motion capture performances, I'm just... Why, well, you don't feel that he should... No. 
Why not? Oh, I think he's amazing. Look at his eyes. It's like half of the performance is down to him, and the rest of it is down to. But, okay, John Hurt when he did the Elephant Man, yeah. wearing huge amounts of makeup, isn't no. that more or less what Andy Serkis is doing? Oh, don't, here? No, it's different. It's so much more interesting. Go yeah. on, I no, agree we, with you on this one. <laughs> but it doesn't haven't we reached a level now where the capture is so faithful to what the actors originally doing that it does? I think the phrase has been used: digital makeup. Isn't it? Isn't that all we're seeing? He's in digital makeup. It's it's a good kind of PR spin, I think, mm. talking about that stuff. Uh, obviously, there's a, a huge amount of craft and, and know how and skill that goes into this. I, I don't mean to downplay that or diminish that at all. I do feel that you know, I, I don't know how mm. difficult is it really to uh, pretend to be a monkey. I think Andy Serkis is taking that to. An incredible level, but that is ultimately it's, what it's, he's doing. It's not his his, his monkey aping. <laughs> Excuse the expression <laughs> uh, that that people are suggesting golden statuettes for. It's the fact that he is so much the centre, the, the the moral heart of this film, and his performance effectively carries in a very very subtle and underplayed way. Mm. Now, whether you think that's actually the wetter programmers who've put that together, or whether it's what he's given them as raw material, I guess is the question here. But I, I think it's a tremendously powerful performance from what is essentially a bit of, of CGI. I think it's mm. I think it's really interesting what he's done here. It's, it's amazing. way beyond just being a, a monkey. I, th- I think it's the character that he plays is very human-like, so the performance is very human-like, so you can we can treat it as an actor performing. Yeah. It's not just a guy pretending to be an ape at all. Go and see uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. And as Adam was suggesting, do let us know what you think. And by all means, if you can track down a copy, watch Max Monomore if you haven't already. What are we going to be suggesting for people to to have a look at for Film Club next week, Adam? Uh, so next week, the, the big release is Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's World War II epic. And we thought it would be nice to revisit an old British loosely war-themed uh, classic called A Matter of Life and Death, a Powell and Pressburger film from 1946. David Niven is is the star. It's a film which I think has some thematic overlaps with Christopher Nolan's work mm. in, in terms of what it talks about with time and purgatory and, and some of these other some of these other themes. So, yeah, that's that's what we're going to revisit. So that's A Matter of Life and Death, Adam? Yeah, and I should quickly say it's, it's got an alternate title. I think in the US it was released as Stairway to Heaven. Really? So if you're searching for it, it's possibly listed as that on IMDb. But mm. anyway, it's Very called A Matter of Life and Death. Mm. That's, a, oh, that was, that's a fabulous choice. Uh, hello to you, Laura Yul, which may not be how you pronounce your name, <laughs> but you're in Melbourne. And you really enjoyed our film club uh, offering stuff, particularly Animal Kingdom. Uh, and you want to say happy birthday to your husband, Ian. And she'd like to nominate for future film clubs, Calvary, What Macy Knew or Control, not the Ian Curtis one, but the one with the K. Uh, and two L's. Yeah, good suggestions. I think we'll add those to the to the list. Do send us your thoughts anyway. Truthandmovies at tcolondon.com is the email address. Twitter at LW. Lies. I'm really looking forward to Dunkirk next week. Mm, me too. You you haven't seen it yet? No. Okay. Uh, I was just going to give a, a, a quick mention mm. to the fact that our interview with Big Chris is up online oh, right. currently. So was you he can, nice? You can read that. David actually interviewed him. Right. I went on a bit of a jolly uh, to Dunkirk 
earlier this oh. year after the production but before the kind of media uh, train had sort of picked up mm. um, yes. yeah we got took a helicopter trip to Dunkirk from uh, from a helipad in Battersea mm. which, well they flew you to Dunkirk in a helicopter yeah yeah which was bizarre it took about 45 minutes it was it was part of some kind of press junket it was a very small press junket uh, we sort of walked along the beach got sandblasted for a little bit wonderful historian who I think consulted on the film talked us through the events of, of the time and how they wow. recreated it the beach is it's unbelievable. It's very kind of stark and long and it's amazing to think, to place yourself there and think of what it must have been like at the time. Right. Uh, then we flew back and did a bit of a junket interview. Uh, I spoke to Harry Styles and a few of the cast. So, oh, yeah, you can, right, you can yeah. read that in our in our latest print edition as well, which is out now. Wow, it's such an iconic event, in uh, certainly from an English point of view, Manuel. Is it, what kind of resonance does it have in, in France? Oh, yeah, it's definitely really important. You know, in France, we, we learn a lot about the war at school every year and we get told those stories over and over again and at the time you might think you know when you're young that you don't understand why but then I realise how important it is and I'm I'm really grateful that we learn of them mm, Absolutely, It seems almost like a forgotten age until you realise that Tainted Love by Soft Cell was released closer to the end of the Second World War than it is to the present day <laughs> Wow That is shocking isn't it? I mean yeah All right uh, well, yeah, looking forward to uh, Dunkirk. And uh, what else are we doing next week? Uh, doing a film called City of Ghosts. Which is? Which is a new documentary uh, released by the always uh, interesting and brilliant Dogwoof. And uh, it was in Sheffield Dockfest earlier this year and was uh, quite a big kind of talking point film there, I think. So, mm. yeah. Well, that's all coming up next week then. Very soon, well, in September, the 13th of September, in fact, Wednesday the 13th of September at 7pm, we'll be doing our first ever live Truth and Movies. Um, and this is going to be at the London Podcast Festival, which is at King's Place, uh, near King's Cross. Yep. Yep. And it's going to be featuring live shows from all sorts of other podcasts. But most importantly, Truth and Movies will be live uh, doing its thing. So that's great. Yeah, very excited for that. And I think tickets are already available for they that. They are available. You're absolutely right. At the King's Place website now. Excellent. All right. Well, that's it for this edition. Thanks ever so much for listening. Manuela, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you as well. And lovely to see you again, Adam. Pleasure as always. And thanks for being with us, listeners. We'll be back next week. For now, this has been a Seven Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.